Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord hands double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of God shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with the young. Good morning, church. Uh, it is good to be with you. Um, I wish we could see you face to face, but uh, God is good and he is with us and he comforts us even as we are apart. I'm going to start by asking you a question. Are you a math guy or are you a history guy? Well, I'm a history guy. And if you're a math guy, I'm sorry, you're just, you're just wrong. History is better than math. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. Math class lies to you. You know that it's true. And if you don't admit that, let me tell you why. And then I know you'll be on my side. So when you start learning math, what do they tell you? They say, okay, this is math class. Math is about numbers. We're teaching our five-year-old math right now. Bailey is rocking it in math. She's got the numbers down. Adding, subtracting, got it. Math is about numbers. I, my little pea brain can wrap, can wrap its mind around that. We're good. And then you get to a certain class in math. You know what they tell you? They say, we know we told you math was all about numbers, but math is really all about letters. And then you take algebra. Letters? Letters and numbers don't go together. That's crazy. That's nonsense. Say, okay, fine. We're going to do our best. You get through algebra, and then you get to another class. You know what they tell you? They say, I know we said math was all about numbers. I know we told you math was all about letters, but it's really all about shapes. And you take geometry. Shapes! Oh, I'm about sick of this. And then you know they're really just messing with you. When in one class they tell you, and now we're going to show you this, called, this stuff called imaginary numbers. And you can almost tell they're just snickering and they're laughing because they know they did, they've got you. Imaginary numbers? Are we doing math in Narnia? Are you kidding me? And so math has given me trust issues. You know what hasn't? History hasn't given me trust issues. History says the Declaration of Independence was accepted July 4th, 1776. Every time I open my book, that's what's going to say. If I go to this class, that's what's going to say. History doesn't add any nonsense like imaginary dates. History is history. It's set in stone. It's going to be 1776, no matter who you ask, no matter where you go, that's the date. It doesn't matter if we know it or not know it, it doesn't matter if we have to discover it or haven't discovered it yet, those events happened in the past and there's nothing we can change about it. There's nothing we can change about it. History is set in stone. 
doesn't change. Doesn't throw you a curveball. This is history. And I like that. It gives me warm, fuzzy feelings. I like it. I like it a lot. And for Christians, it's even better than that. You see, for events in the past, it's easier to change the color of the sky than to change the date that the Declaration of Independence was accepted. You can't change it. It's there. And for Christians, we have things called future history. We have promises from God about events in the future that are as solid and as sure as any events happening in the past. Are you with me? There are things coming to us as believers in the future, given to us by God through Jesus Christ, that we can stake our eternity on. That we can look to our future and know these events are happening. It's as if they've already happened. That's how sure these events are for believers. Isn't that good news? Isn't that great news? And the book of Isaiah is filled with these future historical events, with our future history as believers. And it's these future history events that God calls us to. And he says, look at what's coming for you. Take comfort. So in times of suffering, in times of stress, in times of worry, God lifts these future events up and he says, behold what's coming to you. Take heart. Take comfort. And that's what we're going to look at today in Isaiah chapter 40. If you've been with us, you, you know that we've, we've taken a journey down some of the chapters in Isaiah and we've met some bad kings. We met a bad king, Ahaz. Ahaz was so terrified. He was shaking like leaves in the wind. He was scared of these armies. And Isaiah comes to him and he says, hey, no, look, look, God is good. God has you. He's holding you up. He's, he's got your back. Don't be afraid of these armies. Don't go anywhere else. God will take care of it. And, Isaiah, and Ahaz says, no, I'd rather trust Assyria. And Isaiah says, hey, that the decision that you made to reject God and, and follow Assyria is going to send Judah on a path of destruction. And years later, we see Assyria, the, the force that they put their trust in, became their destruction. And Assyria will end up destroying 46 walled cities of, of Judah. And this message is, whoever, whomever we trust over God will become our destruction. And Judah's not finished there. Even though they've seen the destruction that comes from following foreign powers rather than God, a new king comes up. Hezekiah comes up. And the same thing happens. Hezekiah is now worried about Assyria. And then ironic, king of Judah, Hezekiah is worried about Assyria and he's seeking help. He's seeking to overthrow Assyria and he looks to Babylon and he takes diplomats from Babylon into his, uh, to, to Jerusalem and he shows them all his swords and all his, all his wealth in a way to say, hey, I've got your back, Babylon, if you've got mine. We could take out Assyria. And Isaiah comes to him, he says, Isaiah, Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and Isaiah says, Hezekiah, you have chosen unwisely. Don't trust in foreign powers. Trust in Yahweh. Trust in God. But because you've made this terrible choice, down the road, Judah will be destroyed and Judah will be taken into exile. 
And you know what Hezekiah says? Hezekiah reveals that our hearts are so easily uh, focused on our own interests. Hezekiah says, oh, you're saying that'll happen down the road? Oh, good. It's not going to happen to me. I'm fine. I'm fine. And so Isaiah prophesies about this future history that will happen for Judah. 170 years down the road. 100 years of destruction, 70 years of exile. And he says, this is coming for Judah. Families are going to be ripped up from their homes. People will be killed. Families will be separated. People who lived in the land of promise will be taken from the land that God gave them and will be taken to a pagan land of Babylon. What a tragedy. But then chapter 40, even even after saying all the tragic things, Isaiah says, but there's good news at the end, that God is still faithful in the face of our sinfulness. Isaiah says, even though you're going to be going through this hard time, this destructive time, this exile, there is good news. That there are future history that is being held onto and being prepared for you as God's people. And so Isaiah chapter 40 helps us see, not only is Isaiah prophesying about what's going to happen down the line to Judah as they are in exile for 70 years and then they're brought back to the land out of God's good grace. He prophesies this, but he also looks past even that event to you and to me and to Jesus and what Jesus provides for us that should bring us comfort, that can bring us comfort in times of suffering, in times of trial. And so... What we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about truths about Jesus, future historical events about Jesus that will bring us comfort in times of suffering. And so what I want us to notice, first of all, is that Isaiah is, as Isaiah is showing us these comforting truths about Jesus, He is telling a people that is about to be ripped from their home. Is about to be, families will be ripped apart. They're going to be going into slavery, into Babylon. And he says, here's some comfort for you. Here are some truths that are so weighty that even in the midst of the most horrible suffering that you and I could ever imagine, even in the midst of suffering that we have not even come close to experiencing in our life, even those events are so outweighed by the truth of who Jesus is and what he provides for his people that it's not even in comparison. Isaiah says these truths are something you can grab onto no matter what's happening in your life. There is comfort for you in these future historical events. And so we're going to talk about these events. And the first thing that we're going to see is that we should be comforted by a future filled with the forgiveness of God in Jesus. Do you see how that starts out? Let me read it to you again. This is Isaiah 40, 1 and 2 says this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Comfort. You just said that we're going to be ripped from our homes. We're marching to Babylon. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Comfort, comfort. 
be tender. Tell those people in exile that they are coming back, that their sins have been pardoned. Their sins have been paid for. Now, this was for them, but again, we're looking past them. We're looking to Jesus and we're looking past them to even our suffering now. How does this bring comfort now? Well, this is sacrificial language. Remember the sacrificial system that for the forgiveness of sins, uh, animals were killed for the forgiveness of sins. This shows us the weight of our sin, the messiness of our sin, our need for a sacrifice to bring us forgiveness. It sets up for Jesus. And that's the language that we're learning, that, that Isaiah says you could t- find comfort because something is making a sacrifice for you. Okay, it's sacrificial language. Something has been sacrificed to, to, to bring forgiveness for our sins. And he also says, and this pardon, this sacrifice, is going to be brought not by your hand, but by the Lord's hand. This pardon for your sins has nothing to do with what you bring to the table. It has nothing to do with your goodness. It has nothing to do with... Your actions, it has nothing to do with you taking a lamb to the altar. It has nothing to do with that. It's a, it's a sacrifice that comes from the Lord. And this has been true all throughout Isaiah. This idea that if you and I are going to be forgiven, it has to be a move of God because we can't do it. Isaiah says it this way in, 40, in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. He says, I says God, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God says, I will blot out your sins. You can't blot out your own sins. You can't be good enough to earn forgiveness. He says the same thing in Isaiah 44, 22. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud, and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Redeemed. I have paid for your freedom from your sins. Isn't that good news? And we even have Isaiah's own experience of this pardon. Do you remember in chapter 6, we talked about this briefly, Isaiah chapter 6 has Isaiah in the throne room of God. And Isaiah says, I'm in front of the holy God. I am a sinner amidst a sinful people. I can't be here. And the idea is he is scared to death because he knows that in his sinfulness before a holy God, he deserves to be ripped asunder. I'm going to be ripped asunder. Woe is me. And to make Isaiah acceptable to be in the presence of God. It's nothing that Isaiah did. An angel comes, takes tongs, and takes a burning coal from the altar, puts it on his lips, and he says, there, you can now stand in the presence of God. So Isaiah says, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of your life, there's something coming that will comfort you, and this this something that's coming is a sacrifice that's going to be made to cover your sins, and this is a sacrifice that doesn't come from your own hand, This is forgiveness that is not purchased by you from your good works. This is going to come from the hand of God who blots out our sins. And so what sacrifice can come from the Lord's hand 
spilling of blood to take away our iniquities. Iniquities take away our sins. What can this sacrifice be? Well, in 40, remember in chapter 40, he's telling a a people about to go in exile that this is coming for you. You could take comfort because there's a future history for you in which your sins are pardoned. Your sins are forgiven. And then Isaiah fills this picture out in later chapters. In Isaiah chapter 53, he fills, what will this sacrifice look like? Who will bring this to us, And he gives us a fuller picture of who this will be, what this sacrifice will be. And this will be a, from a man named the Messiah, called the Messiah. And this is what Isaiah 53 says about this man, about this sacrifice. He says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And you could see Isaiah writing this to a, a people who are going to be well acquainted with grief. They're in exile. Their families ripped up, torn apart. People died. People destroyed because of their sin. He says, this man is well acquainted with grief. And he continues, he says, surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Isaiah says, someone is coming, take comfort, someone is coming, and he will be pierced for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. There's that word. 40 says, rejoice, your iniquities have been paid for. 53 says, he shows us the picture, pierced for our iniquities. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. For whose guilt? For Judah's guilt, for your guilt, for my guilt, he shall see his offspring. Take heart, take comfort, people of God, that although your sins have brought destruction, aren't we paying for our sins? Don't you pay for your sins? I pay for my sins. Destruction, sins bring destruction. Although we might be going through suffering, although we might be going through grief, take heart, take comfort, because someone is coming to pay for our sins, to bring forgiveness for our sins, making a sacrifice for our sins. And this person is the Messiah. It's not an animal, it's the Messiah. And it's the person of Jesus Christ. Look to that future history that all your sins are paid for. But we might be thinking, and the people of Judah might be thinking, okay, great, I'm glad that our past sins have been paid for, but isn't this like the sacrificial system that I have to continually make sacrifices? What about my future sins? Talk about future history. Well, I know I'm going to be a sinner in the future. What about those? And Isaiah says, it's not like the old way. It's not like the way you and I might make forgiveness, that I'll forgive you and I'll make you pay, but just enough and I might forgive you. He says, that's not like that. And he uses, he uses weights and measures. He uses terms for weights and measures here. And he says, 
take comfort that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Not in judgment, not saying you sin and I'm going to make you pay double. But God says, I'm going to weigh your sins out. Look how heavy your sins are. But I'm not just going to give you grace to weigh your sins out. I'm going to pay you double. My grace will be double. And what's the point? Grace upon grace upon grace. He throws the scale out. He says, I'm just going to, Paul says, I'm going to, he's going to lavish us with grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy. This comfort about a future pardon for us. We are pardoned forever in Jesus. He doesn't just say, you pay enough for now and then pay again. He says, you Christian, your sins are paid for past, present, and future, take comfort in that. Take comfort in that. He wants you to take comfort, Christian, that he's not going to leave you. That your future sin is not going to kick Jesus out of your heart. Why? Because we have a future event that we are accepted by God under the cross of Jesus. And that acceptance is true forever. That good news? That's great news. He gives us a double portion of grace. We should be comforted by a future filled with the tenderness of God in Jesus. Did you notice all the tender words he uses here? God's tenderness should comfort us. In spite of our gross rejection of God, in spite of Hezekiah and Ahaz and Judah going to these men, these flawed men because they have bigger guns than everybody else, going to them instead of the God who delivered you from Egypt, instead of the God who has called you His people, instead of the God who's given you manna from heaven, all these things that God has done, we're going to go there. What a gross thing. And we do that, don't we, in our own lives. Don't we turn to other things for satisfaction and for comfort? Don't we turn to sins? That's what we do. How That is the grossest sin that any of us can make. In spite of this, God is tender and cares about your comfort. What a beautiful thing. In spite of our gross rejection, in spite of our rebellion against Him, He doesn't call Himself in this passage the judge, although He is. calls himself our shepherd. Listen to how he says it. Look to the future, Israel. Look to the future history. The Lord comes, verse 10, and he will, verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. Listen to these words. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom like a baby and gently lead those who are with young. What does that say? Gently lead those who are with young. Got a mommy sheep, a daddy sheep, and a baby sheep. Baby sheep can't go very fast. God's not going to leave them behind. Isn't that amazing? 
In this picture of the shepherd taking the sheep somewhere, he's taking us to the promised land of being with him forever. That's a, that's a historical future event that's going to happen. He's going to take his people to the promised land of heaven to be with him forever. And sometimes do you feel like a baby lamb that's just stumbling along that you can't keep up? God's not going to look at you and go, I wish you were less of a sinner. You could hurry up. You know what? We're just going to leave you behind. That's not what God does. What a tender God we have. And this shepherd, Isaiah says, there's a shepherd coming and he's tender. He's going to care for you. He's going to care for believers. And then Jesus shows up. So now remember, Isaiah is saying, you're going to return from exile. It's going to be nice, but there's even a better thing coming later. There's this man named Jesus who's coming and he's going to be the shepherd. Jesus says, John 10, I am the good shepherd. What was he thinking about? Jesus knew this passage. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd, Jesus says, lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Tender. Gather the young lambs in my arms. Gather them in my bosom. Gently lead those that are with young where has it start? Comfort, comfort, tenderness, tenderness. God's comfort. He is quick with comfort. He is slow with anger. Isn't that great? He is quick with comfort and slow with anger. Is anyone else so thankful that he is slow with anger in our sins? in our sinfulness, in that sin that you struggle with. God is slow to anger with you. He knows you're just a little lamb that's stumbling around. He's slow with anger, quick with comfort. This also shows that he is not an accountant that, that just punches a clock and sees how many sins you have to your good deeds and then lets you get in but really goes off and does his own life. No, you are his life. He's your shepherd. He's your, you're his job. That he has invested in you, believer. He calls himself our dad. He calls himself our shepherd. He calls himself a bird spreading its wings over its chicks. And this is countercultural because biblical truth says gentleness is a virtue. That's countercultural. The world says gentleness is a vice. Gentleness makes you weak. To the world, being boisterous is a virtue. Being opinionated is a virtue. Being loud is a virtue. Being confrontational is a virtue. Being hard is a virtue. But Scripture says, no, followers of God, His people are different. Deacons, pastors, elders, a qualification for these men is gentleness. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5. Soft answers turn away wrath. Hebrews. We're people of submission. Submit to the authorities. Submit to our elders. Submit to one another. We're people of service. Serve one another. 
And God's tenderness should comfort us. Isaiah says we should also be comforted by a future filled with the might of God shown in Jesus. Now, I know you might be saying, well, gentleness and might, how are those things the same? They're, they are opposites. Well, they're not opposites. In fact, you have to have might to be gentle. You with me? If, if, you, you've, got, if you've got no might, then you're not gentle, you're just weak. Gentleness is having power, having might, having strength, and laying it down. That's gentleness. And if you don't have gentleness and you're just showing might because you're afraid to show gentleness, then your might is not really mighty, is it? It's pretty flimsy if you can't show gentleness. So no, these things are, these things are not opposites. They're complementary. God has might, tremendous might. And he shows gentleness to his people. Isn't that good news? And we have to have both. We have to have both. Because we don't want God showing us His might. I don't want to be under the might of God. He shows our enemies His might. He shows His enemies His might. He shows His people gentleness. Isn't that good news? We see this. Verse 10 says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might. And his arm rules for him. It's mighty. Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. If he was just gentle, he couldn't kill death for us. If he's gentle and mighty, he will save. Jesus is mighty. I charge you, Paul says, 2 Timothy 4.1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead. Might. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody can be against us. No one could stand up to the might of God. If he says that history is happening, it is happening. So God is... Behold, our God has come and He is mighty. He is mighty to save. And so that is how we know, that's how we know that this future history is coming to pass because our God is mighty. And He is so mighty that what He says happens will always happen. Verse 7 and 8, The grass withers, the flowers fade. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The people are grass and God just has to blow on them and they're gone. It's like a dandelion. The people, the mighty armies of Babylon, the mighty army of Assyria that we fear so much, that we're trying to have protect us, God plucks them from the ground like a dandelion. And whenever He's ready, He blows and they're gone. But His Word stays forever. The Word that He used to create the universe, 
stands forever. So if he says someone is coming to bring a pardon for our sins, someone's coming to bring a pardon for our sins. If he says Get, have comfort in my tenderness, he is going to be tender. Whatever he says happens will happen because this is the might of our God. We see this in Jesus, don't we? John 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Who's the Word? Jesus. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Isaiah says God's Word blows armies away. And then that same powerful, mighty Word became flesh among us. The second person of the Trinity, fully God, fully man, walked among us. We've seen his glory. How do we know that how do we know that we'll be saved? Because God's word is unstoppable, and God's word, Jesus, took flesh to make our salvation happen. He's mighty. Take comfort. What he says happens will happen. Nothing will stop his word. And finally, and ultimately, we should be comforted by a future filled with the presence of God in Jesus Christ. Three through five, a voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall, shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There's that might again. So what else comforts us? God is coming. His presence is going to be among us. Wait, 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 wait. We were talking about Judah being exiled away into Babylon. Shouldn't this say, a voice cries out in the wilderness, take comfort because you're coming back, make the road right for you? No. No. What brings comfort is not escaping tragic situations. What brings comfort is the presence of God in our lives. How valuable must that be? Isaiah is speaking to a group of people that are going to be in a tragic situation. It ripped, families ripped apart being slaves out of the land. And he doesn't say, take comfort because you're coming back. He doesn't just say that. What does he say right here? Take comfort because the presence of God is coming. That must make everything okay. That must make everything all right. That must bring such tremendous joy that I could survive anything this life has to throw at me because God is coming. God is coming. 
And so Isaiah cries, Isaiah says his voice is crying, prepare the way. And when a king would come into your city, you would go out and smooth the road out as best you can so his horse doesn't stumble. And he says, this king that is coming is so great. You're not just doing that on a mile of highway. No, you are bringing the mountains down. You are bringing the valleys up. This king is so great, the whole earth has changed by his presence. Take comfort. Behold, our God is coming. Behold, our God is coming. And then, and then what do we have? Remember, I mean, this should be so foreign to, to Judah. They're, they're hearing this. They're saying, wait, I, I want to be comforted by coming back. Yeah, you're going to come back, but there's a better comfort that's coming. And they say, well, that's not after the exile. Messiah doesn't come. What, what's going on? No, that look beyond 170 years from now. Look beyond that. And then we get a man named John the Baptist who's sent by God. And we have this in the book of John. So they say to him, to John, who are you? We need an answer for those who sent us. Who, what do you say about yourself? And John the Baptist replies in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And then what does he do? And then he says, that man, Jesus, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one I'm calling out to make straight a path for. Because Jesus has come. And it's his presence that brings comfort. Jesus is with us. Can you believe that? He is with us, believer. In every suffering situation you find yourself in, Jesus is there. And his presence should show that he cares about you. And his might should show that he will take care of you. And his tenderness should show that he doesn't want bad for you, but good for you. And His presence with you should show that your sins have been forgiven. And so every situation, whether it's exile, whatever you're going through in your life, the presence of Jesus should help you understand one thing. Whatever you're going through, Jesus is there. He loves you too much to let you suffer something that won't be for your eternal good. He is too strong for any of your suffering to overcome Him. So whatever you're experiencing... He allows for your eternal good and His eternal glory. Whatever you're experiencing, Jesus is with you. And in 10,000 years, you're going to see this suffering that you're experiencing now. You're going to see it as something glorious because it brought you eternal good and Jesus eternal glory. Take comfort because God is with us. As we are seeing Jesus come, make way the path for Jesus, and then he walks among us. But the path of Jesus is not just in front of us. It's within us. Make way the path. John the Baptist says, make way the path for Jesus. Make every mountain go low, every valley come up, smooth the way out. What does he mean? How do we do that? Well, he says that because Jesus has come, not just for an earthly throne, but he's come for a throne in your heart. And John the Baptist says, make ready, make way, make the path straight for Jesus. 
And John the Baptist did this in two ways. He called people to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. How do you prepare your heart for Jesus? How do you experience the presence of God? How do you become a follower of God? How can you experience the future history that we've talked about? Repent. We turn from Babylon. We turn from Assyria. We turn from our sins. And we say, God, I'm that little lamb that's stumbling around. I'm lost. I need Jesus. I'm going to leave everything behind. And I'm going to follow Jesus. And then John said, be baptized. Why be baptized? Because baptism is an outward symbol of an inner truth. That you are a new person. That you are following God. That you are following Jesus. My friends, we're not in exile. But we are suffering. We're, I mean, we're going through something that, that, will, that has changed every aspect of our life. Around the world. But we know, as believers, we can take comfort in this time. Because our sins have been paid for. Because God is tender toward us in Jesus. And God is mighty toward our enemies in Jesus. And that Jesus is with us. Take comfort. We love you. I will see you next time.